You know, uh, Pastor Leach and I did not compare notes on this, but Psalm 81.8, if you would turn to that, I'm not preaching on it today, but we read it in the Psalm of, of the week, Psalm 81.8. Uh, let me read it to you again. It says, Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel, if you would listen to me. That is the center verse of the Psalter. That's a big deal to Hebrews and to any in the ancient world, that the middle of anything is where you look for the big point. And uh, that's the big point of the Psalms. It's the big point of Scripture. It's the big point of our gathering here today. Uh, Not that I'm any great shakes, but as a representative of God speaking the word today to you, representing the people of Israel today, God's increased Israel, would you listen? And that verse suggests that there's enemies. It says, would you listen? Here, I'm admonishing you. I'm instructing you, you must listen, for this is your life. So again, in line with one of the prayers uttered today, uh, there are distractions inside and outside, and I pray that you would put all of those off. I direct your attention to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, if this is a version that all of you have together, I find this passage on page 161 of the New Testament portion. And you'll see a title there, and yes, it's accurate. It says, The Man of Lawlessness. This is where we meet him. (laughs) But uh, who else do we meet? In verses 1 through 12, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12 says this, Hear, O Israel, please listen. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. This is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, and I would suggest, therefore, in church history as well, uh, let it not divide us today, but it has been a divisive text that uh, literally uh, denominations and congregations have shattered over their understandings of this passage. And I don't want that to happen uh, for you, but I want you to actually be strangely encouraged by this harrowing 
passage. There are some unclear things as you fix your eyes on that, those 12 verses, some unclear things. And let's, so let's mention them and, and, and get them a little bit out of the way so we can actually concentrate on the clear things. Unclear things. Uh, there's evidently a false epistle or a false letter that has arrived, probably uh, with the, the signature, the so-called signature of Paul, Silvanus and Timothy at the bottom, three apostles who were uh, much beloved by the young Thessalonian congregation. And so an imposter would certainly try to sneak in his false things through the uh, language of true apostles. It mentions a future major apostasy. It's fancy language for a falling away. And uh, this happens at the same time as the uncovering of the man of lawlessness. So the man of lawlessness is exposed, he's, he's identified, and an apostasy, a great falling away from the truth, occurs in the same moment, in the same year. It's a period of time. And this is strangely connected to God's temple and its worship. And there's debates on, does this mean the literal temple in Jerusalem uh, of the past or of the future to us? Must the, that temple be rebuilt in order for us to have this thing take place? Or is the temple a figure of speech for the place where God's people gather for worship, like the church? Could uh, this person be somebody from inside the church who uh, is holding forth the word of the Lord, but it's a false word that drives people away? Who knows? We don't know. Many debates on that. Number four, fourth thing, a restraining power is holding back the full revelation of this man of lawlessness. Something's holding him back, like a dam holds back a river, in a way. This falling away is clearly connected to Satan's activity. The man of lawlessness is not Satan, but they're intertwined. The man of lawlessness is is infused with, empowered by Satan, and Satan's activity. False powers or false signs, false miracles are leading people into this apostasy. Uh, here's a, a hidden one, but I see it in there. Uh, Lord, is it me? Is it I? You're, we're used to hearing that text at the Last Supper where the godly disciples, I think maybe Judas is the only one who didn't ask the question, <laughs> but the others did, even Peter, John. Is it me? Is it, am I this one? And I'm not asking God, am I the man of lawlessness? Am I this uh, antichrist figure? But I'm asking for myself, am I going to be one of these who falls away? And I ask you today to at least ask yourself that question. It, this passage almost begs us to ask that question. Am I among those who will be swept away by this deceiver, the, the dam that's holding back the river, and here comes the man of lawlessness with his apostasy, and he washes away. I don't know what, how percentages work, but is it 50% of the public church is swept away by this falsity? Is it, is it me? Could it be me? And seventh, if, if this passage is about last things, eschatology, things that happen right before the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ, then it hasn't happened yet. Can we agree? I hope we'll read this passage. The point is it hadn't happened yet when Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are writing this chapter. And I say to you with clarity, it hasn't happened yet. So has this passage been useful for 2,000 years worth of Christians? Or is it just something that we can fold away to say, well, we're not in the last days. Maybe we are, but we're not. And uh, so it's for a later generation. Let me make a couple remarks about these unclear things in the 
And then we'll go into the heart of the passage today. Um, the fact that there are false epistles out there is very disturbing. But it's not surprising if you know church history because there were lots of false gospels and false epistles in the ancient church. And thus the wonderful ministry of canonics. I doubt that any of us in this room have thanked God in the past week. Oh God, thank you for the, the science of canonics. But we should. Thank you, God, for those who sifted through the chaff from the wheat and not decided what would be the word of God, but recognized what is the word of God. So the strawy things, the things that are going to be blowing away, the chaff that doesn't belong. And there are many false gospels. The gospel of Thomas is bandied about in our day as this great discovery. And it's a false thing that's been known as false for many centuries. And we don't need to be disturbed. We have the word of God. But it's not surprising that the enemy would introduce false things to, to distract our attention. It seems that uh, if you look at 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians as a body, eight chapters in total, uh, even though this is a very faithful congregation, in its first three years, that's all the years that we know about, there had been a number of her- heretics working within their midst. And one of the early heresies was, uh, oh, I'm sorry, everybody. If your loved ones aren't alive when Jesus comes, they're going straight to hell. I'm sorry for you. And what a discouraging message, actually, from the pit of hell to let us think that our only mission is to stay alive, whatever it takes, whatever compromise it takes to stay alive in the body down here so that we can greet Jesus when he comes back because if I or my loved ones die, well, we're just going off to hell. What a a terrible, pernicious heresy. And this uh, mortuary, I, I suppose that many, many times Christian ministers have stood here giving comfort appropriate biblical comfort to people whose faithful loved ones believed in God right to the end and we say to one another they are well now but that heresy in first Thessalonians said no how could they be well they weren't around when Jesus returned so let's stay alive what a pernicious heresy and now even a worse one a worse one is that that would have caught maybe 30% of the congregation and made them very dismal if they believed it. This one captures everybody. You missed it. Jesus Christ came and you missed the whole thing. We all missed it. Did we miss it? Did Jesus come and we missed it? The church of Thessalonica or the church in America today, what, what are we doing then? Let me mention one more thing. You say, apostasy, wow, what does that look like? I, this is the value of church history, my friends. <laughs> there have been many heresies, many heresies over the 2,000 years approximate since these letters were written that have driven vast portions of the church away from the truth. I just think back 100 years to the great fundamentalist controversy of the early 1900s and the beautiful answer that the evangelical church gave, that we must believe that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired, infallible, perfect word of God. We must believe that Jesus was actually born of a virgin. I know that sounds crazy, and we want to follow the science, don't we? But Jesus was born of a virgin. It says so, and it had to be. The death of Jesus Christ was not just a wonderful example of paying the price for your convictions, but it's a substitutionary atonement. It's the the provision of God, uh, the, the Lord will provide a sacrifice for us. Genesis 22, coming forward to the cross to say that's what was happening. 
The Father was providing, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Yira, our provider, providing the lamb that we could never provide. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ three days later was literal, physical, and real. Not just an imaginary, spiritual, ghosty thing, or the worst thing ever said, a charismatic resurrection that happens every time we remember our dearly departed friend Jesus. We keep his memory alive. Can we do that and live in that great spirit of our dear departed friend Jesus? That's pernicious. Jesus' resurrection was bodily, physical, and real. And the fifth thing is his return will be bodily, physical, and real. Just as you saw him go, you shall see him return. And I'm saying, 100 years ago, an apostasy drove half of the American church into bad waters. And there was a strong and united response to the evangelical churches, and we're grateful for that. But the devil... And his agents, the many men of lawlessness, the many antichrists, have continued to pound at the foundation of the church. So we should be alert. In our day, even if Jesus tarries another 500 years, there, are, there is work for us to be doing today. So in order to understand a little bit about this uh, passage, I want to suggest a mountain peaks analogy. If you'll, if you'll go on a trip with me, I wouldn't mind. Is this on here a little bit? So I'm going to use my big boy voice out here for a moment, okay? So get in the car with me from Kansas, if you don't mind, which is where I've been for 20 years. And we're going to go from the Flatlands, Kansas. Florida is flatter than Kansas, by the way, so it's not making fun. Uh, but anyway, we're moving on all drive, if you don't mind. And since we're in America, I'll drive on this side. Okay, and we cross the uh, border from uh, Kansas into Colorado, and pretty soon we start, what do we, kids, what do we see ahead of us there in Colorado? What do we see? Way out there. Anything? Mountains. Yeah, the little children in the audience. Thank you, my, my baby daughter, Tirza. All right, Tirza might leave some answers for the rest of you if she's generous. But anyway, good job. She's done this before. We see mountains, and it looks this, this purple. This, this, it's out 100 miles, and it's awesome. And it looks, because we're looking through a windshield, and we're all here, it looks somewhat, shall I say, two-dimensional. Here's what I mean is, it looks like there's mountains, and it's just like we would draw mountains on a, you know, you can even do that on your notepad, it's there. Draw mountains, it's just two-dimensional, all right? But as we get closer, we find out, hey, we're in the mountains. Actually, hills. We're in what we call the foothills. And well, there, and we turn around, and there's some, some little mountains behind us, and, and yet there's still more. And, and then we go, certainly this has got it, and we come to the top of that, and there's more mountains, and the higher mountains. And what we understand is, if you'll go with me on a, a little bit of a trip here, if we could possibly get to the side of this scene, we would see that there's foothills here, and then a nicer range here, a nicer range here, and a nicer range here. So how does this apply to prophecy? Here we are, church. And God's word, if we read it well, it tells us about things that are yet to come. And it's all out there, and it looks two-dimensional to us. Oh, I see, when we get in the mountains, that will be it. And we hear prophecies about this coming Messiah. Now we hear prophecies of the second coming of the Messiah. We also hear prophecies about a man of lawlessness, and an antichrist, and other things like that. And as we drive into that thing, 
it's quite possible that we're going to come up and we're going to say, this is certainly it. And we say, oh, that's just the foothills. And then we come and hire things and hire things. And if we can get ever to the side, and in heaven, we're going to get to the side of this and be able to say, oh, that wasn't an Antichrist, but there's the Antichrist at the end. That's a, a type of Christ, David, Moses, Jeremiah, other types of Christ, but the great Christ had to come. It's like, oh, I thought I knew, and now I really know. And it's only kind of a, as we go through it, and as we get to the end of it, we see, oh, it really makes sense to me now. So I hope that this both encourages you and humbles you to say, anybody who says, I know what that's about, just say, wait, wait a little bit. In the future eternity, we will be able to finally see how many of these predictions had one primary fulfillment at the end, and they had many preliminary fulfillments before the end. Each generation of God's own people experiencing something of the stress, challenge, and victory of that prophesied item. These, these lesser ones, of course, are smaller than the grand finale, but to any believer who's actually going through the trial in any generation, it didn't seem minor. It didn't seem small. It didn't seem insignificant. God actually set us up to anticipate this dynamic by using, in the New Testament, some of the same terms his Old Testament prophets used to predict the wicked reign of a Syrian, not a Syrian, but a Syrian king during the 400 silent years. A guy named, and put your hand up if you've heard this, Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? It's a monstrous name. I mean, actually it could be a beautiful name, but because of the little you know about him, he's a jerk and a monster. He actually offered a swine on the sacrificial altar in the temple in Jerusalem just because he knew that would tick him off the most. The prophets call or nickname him the abomination that causes desolation or the thing that he did as the abomination that causes definition, uh, desolation. But epiphany, epiphanies, the church uses the word epiphany sometimes and it's a beautiful word, but this guy took a, a name that means I am the manifest God. I am God made manifest on earth. Does that sound like somebody we read about 10 minutes ago? The man of lawlessness having to do with the temple of God will exhibit himself as I am the one to be praised and worshiped by you. Pretty quickly after these prophecies were made, there were a few Roman emperors who matched certain of these dread attributes in the times of Christ and the apostles and the early church fathers. They hogged worship to themselves. The pinch of incense on the altar of Caesar was a well-known mandate throughout the empire to unify all these diverse people and all their religions. And the only two kinds of people who could not offer that pinch of incense were the Jews and the Christians because they were monotheists. Everybody else was polytheistic. And so this became a, a great test and a falling away, an apostasy for the people of God to say, will I compromise this key truth of biblical Christianity? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Triune though he may be, there's one God in the ain't Caesar. Then to the surprise of many, when the church became legal and then mandated and popular, strong leaders in the church itself 
began to demand a high degree of submission with such clarity that some in our own ancestry were confident that they knew who the man of lawlessness was or the Antichrist, some religious figure in the same city of Rome. John, the last of the writing apostles, wrote at the end of the New Testament record that uh, an Antichrist is coming, but many Antichrists have already come. And that sets us up for this this mountain peaks analogy, doesn't it? To say there is an Antichrist, maybe a capital A big guy, but there's many Antichrists. And he says in 80 or 90 AD, many had already come at that time. And I would simply say hundreds more wonderful, terrible candidates have surfaced since that time. And we might have thought, well, that's, that's what it's going to be. But then a string of monsters appeared in the 1900s. And I promise you that Christians who love Jesus as much as you do, Christians who love the word of God as much as you do, said Hitler is this man of lawlessness. You say, well, what did Hitler have to do with the church? Are you aware that Hitler put swastikas in the Christian churches of Germany and any lands that... He, Hitler told people he was a Christian. It turns out absolutely atheistic and Darwinistic in every way, maybe cultic on the side, worshiping Satan directly. It's a very confusing thing. He was no Christian, but for a while he put a crooked cross next to the real cross. Not reading history very carefully, Xi Jinping today, current monstrous leader of China, puts his portrait next to the cross of Jesus Christ in the legal churches of China. He puts Mao Zedong on the other side. And uh, by the way, I've heard this from Chinese themselves. They see this seems most appropriate to have the cross of Christ in the middle and two thieves on either side, if you don't mind. That's, that's not my joke, and it's not a joke. It's what they say that seems appropriate. But here are men, mere men, in the temple of God or the places of worship, holding themselves up at least equal to, if not greater than. Today we find Bible-loving Christians in America pointing the finger at the United Nations. They might say, the United Nations is the man of lawlessness, or the World Economic Forum, I've actually heard people say this, the World Economic Forum is the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist. And I I think we can get a little bit careless here and sloppy. Uh, Anything that we don't like. On the other hand, these are organizations that do demand a lot more submission than is due to any man or any organization. And in an atheistic culture, they begin to demand our allegiance. I read a couple weeks ago a testimony of one of the lost boys of Sudan. Are you familiar with their story? 25, 30 years ago, these young, largely Christian tribals were being hunted down by ISIS-style demonic murderers who were cutting off their heads if not before that, their hands and their arms, hunting them down uh, like vicious demons. And uh, the Church of Sudan called these antichrists and the man of lawlessness, this move against them. But in the same way, we rightly believe one major antichrist is yet to come, while agreeing that even in the first century, many antichrists had already come, we're wise to recognize the mystery or spirit of lawlessness wherever it shows its ugly face, And again, remaining humble as to the one man of lawlessness whose revelation will immediately precede the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What to do? This is where we come down to the so what. 
what to do in a world where we don't know where on that journey we're in. Are we in the foothills? Are we really close to the end? And uh, there are many antichrists and man, men are the mystery of lawlessness. The spirit of lawlessness is around us all the time. What to do? And I say, holding up my Bible, and you may hold up yours, truth, truth, truth. This is how you will not be that sixth point that I made. Is it me? Is it I, Lord? Will I be deceived? Will I be washed away in the apostasy? Will I be tricked by one of these ones who looks so good and yet turns out so bad? Truth, truth, truth. Filling our diets with scripture. I'm so pleased uh, coming in. You have catechism class. and The best thing about catechism is it direct, directs you to 107 or the longer list of truth statements that are all supported by scripture. It's the greatest summary of scripture we could give to our children. So hide it in their hearts so that when the false thing exposes itself and, and when the, the one who's holding back the man of the law says, I'm here, there will be some among us saying, no, you're not. You're not Jesus. You're not the leader that we need. You're not an apostle of truth. We want to discern lies as early as possible and not be pulled down into deadly riptides. And it's no accident that the most vital truths to grasp point us to the one who called himself the way, the truth, and the life, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And what truth primarily? Well, we know how the church in Thessalonica was established because we get that account in Acts. And it's a very quick and clean passage. And there's basically one message that Paul Silvanus and Timothy preached in Thessalonica for maybe three weeks. That's all they had. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. And that was their whole message. Now, they didn't just repeat it like a mantra, because there has to be a question. What do you mean? (laughs) We've never heard of this Jesus, or prove it. We've been looking forward to this Messiah for generations. And now you say, this guy... 20 years ago in Palestine was the guy, you've got to prove that to me. So they would hold forth the historic record of Jesus and the things that he did and said, basically the substance of the Gospels. And then they'd have to show that the cross was a substitutionary atonement according to the prophets, Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. And then the beginnings of the epistles. And this might be the very first one to explain what that means for us and how it shapes together a church that is going to be this... uh, messenger of the truth, the true gospel to the world. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. Who this Jesus is and what he did. Major in that, the person and the work of Christ. And let that expand out to includes all that the scriptures teach and tell us, including the spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and what's he doing in us to transform us into a new kind of people. I want to close... um, with a a term that I learned as an engineer 25, 30 years ago. It was called KISS. And there was nothing romantic about it. It was K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. And that's the last time I will say stupid from this pulpit today. I've only said it twice and that's it. But K-I-S-S, keep it simple. So uh, what do you want to take away about this man of lawlessness? And and my boast beforehand that we would be strangely encouraged in a sermon about the man of lawlessness. I propose um, seven things, and you're saying to yourself, a seven-part sermon at the conclusion? It's quick, it's quick, so stay with me here, all right? Number one, there's an analogy I like to use that that the church has sometimes given too much attention to Satan and and to the demonic. 
Now, I caution you here because uh, C.S. Lewis said in Screwtape Letters, one of the devil's greatest tricks is to persuade us he doesn't even exist and to not think about him. And I rebuke you if you've never thought about Satan, but I also rebuke you if you're constantly thinking about Satan. And I think the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist, I remember a generation that I was growing up in the 1970s in Southern California, a very distinct memory as a six-year-old, um, a seven-year-old in a, a Baptistic school uh, that also had a heavy charismatic element, and a, a fellow seven-year-old uh, was being disciplined. He was being dragged away to the principal's office for some time with the board of discipline, if you know what I mean. Um, the board of education, they called it at the time. Uh, not allowed today. But uh, as he was being dragged by an arm, he said, the devil made me do it, the devil made me do it. And I thought, man, I, that would be a really good excuse for me to have every time I get in trouble at home. And uh, I think the guy, the young man, needed to learn a lot. I think the world, the flesh, and the devil had great interest in this young man being a pernicious, a little uh, evil influence in my classroom. But I wouldn't blame everything on the devil, and I wouldn't see him everywhere, okay? And in the same way, the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness, I'm asking you all to calm down a little bit. And I don't know where San Antonio in 2023 is, if you're thinking, as a Christian culture down here, too much about the devil and demons, you're thinking, not enough about the devil and the demons. I don't know where you are. You'll have to uh, go with your local leadership here. But let's not give so much attention to Satan, the demonic, where Jesus has to be over here on the side, as it were, knocking on the door of the church, saying, hey, church, can I come in and have some fellowship with you? Could you give a little attention to me? What do you think? You think Jesus deserves about equal attention with the man of lawlessness or a little less or a little more? That suggests he deserves the, the 90-10 principle. Let's go with 90% of our attention to Jesus and minimal. And even the only time that we would ever want to think about the devil and his minions is how Jesus is calling us to interact with them. And the second thing, 2 Thessalonians 2 actually is the clearest, uh, I'm going to say boldly, it's the only passage in the Bible about the man of lawlessness. These 12 verses are the only. And he's trapped in a Jesus sandwich in this passage. Verse 1 is about Jesus. Verse 12 is about the judgments of Jesus. Verse 8, right in the middle, even in the middle, where that's the, about the man of lawlessness, it's still about Jesus. This ferocious figure who many Christians dread, I imagine there are Christians sweating in their beds about the Antichrist and the man of lawlessness, is Jesus wins. As we say in one of my favorite movies, the man of lawlessness is in a tight spot. He's in a tight spot. And it's getting tighter and tighter. And he will be crushed between a rock, the rock, and a very hard place. Third, even in his day of power, and I emphasize the word day, the man of lawlessness in the scope of eternity has a day of power. It might be a minute. It might be six months, but it's tiny. Even in his day of power and influence, you know what? The man of lawlessness is bound. He is chained like Satan on a leash. John Calvin, uh, my great uh, theological hero, and uh, I think I was named after him, if not Grandpa John McFarland. Anyway, um, John Calvin spoke of Satan on a leash. He got that from the Bible. He got it from Job. The clearest expression of 
What are the limits of Satan's power? And in Job, probably the first book of the Bible ever written, we meet Satan in the first chapter, but he's asking permission of our God. Highly limited and ultimately obliged to do only what God allows him to do. We, we make too little of the best promises in the scripture. And here's one, I will let you fill it in. Greater is he in an era of multiple translations, it's frustrating. But anyway, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And he who is in the world is cleared about Satan, and Satan is greater than the man of lawlessness. Satan is greater than the Antichrist. So whatever you think about these pernicious, oh, ferocious characters, greater is he who is in us. I remember a scene from the uh, movie versions of... uh, Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian or Pilgrim is in a dungeon. Giant despair. Has him. I don't know if he's in there for a week, a day, a month. And he's just so dismal. Oh, I'm trapped. He's kind of shaking. And all of a sudden he feels in his pocket there's a key. He's got the key to let himself out of the dungeon. And the key is the promises of God. He says, Oh, fool. He calls himself a fool, as we should. It's like, what am I doing? Stuck here for this week. I've wasted a week of the journey under the despair of the enemy. And all along, I've had this key of God's word to get out of this stupid, stinky dungeon. And he gets out and he's free. Oh, fool. And you're not ultimately a fool if you're in Christ. But we do foolish things. And any of you who have been shivering at the thought of this man of lawlessness... Or this Antichrist, oh, he's going to take over the world. Oh, who is the King of Kings? Who is the Lord of Lords? All authority in heaven and earth will someday be given to me, Jesus said. No, 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 no. Jesus, before he ascended at the Great Commission, the very reason he gives the commission says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, that's why you should go. 2,000 years ago. And it's only increased since that time. The gospel's going forward. It's rushing mightily. Gospel shoes that you've been given. It's sprinting and it's going deep and it's going down into all the places. Number four, a man of lawlessness can't even show up until the one restraining him is removed. And this has to be removed by God. It's God's purpose for his reason. I don't exactly know. I don't fully have the mind of God fully yet. But he's got this Antichrist, man of losses figure. And there's a function he's performing. But like Satan on a leash, he's performing only what God allows him to do. And he's being withheld by God. And enjoy that. Enjoy that he's not revealed yet. When he is revealed, if you are here on earth, if this is next year or 10 years from now or next week, I don't know. But when he is revealed, I trust that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So we have no cause for alarm or fear. But it will be a sifting operation. It will be a sorting out. It will be a separating function where those who are engaged with the church for self-centered reasons or nominal reasons or cultural reasons who didn't really have the love of Christ and the gospel of Christ inside, they will be chased away by the flood. 
And those who are in Christ will be proven to be so. But you recognize that in an eye blink, whatever time the man of lawlessness has his power, his moment of power, it says in an eye blink compared to eternity, King Jesus will kill him with a breath. We sang about nostrils, a psalm of judgment. And I don't want you to be scared of the breath of Jesus. Be scared of my breath. I have halitosis issues. I'll I'll work with you on that. But Jesus' breath gives life. He breathed into the nostrils of a clay statue, and he became a living, nephish soul, became Adam, our forefather. Jesus, before he, at the Last Supper, I believe, he breathed on his disciples, has received the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. He received some power and encouragement on that day. The breath of Jesus is our life, but that also means the breath of Jesus destroys anything that's against your life. That's how this awesome man of lawlessness goes out. Jesus breathes on him, and he's done. If that doesn't encourage you today, I I don't know, maybe you're unstuck the ears. Let, Let those who have ears to hear let you hear. Number five, this might be the most important application. Who are the traveling companions of the man of lawlessness? Because I'm telling you, I, I don't know who that guy is. I don't know exactly what to look for, but I know his traveling companions. And when he comes down the road, I know what group of people to look for. And here they are from this very chapter. Deceitful, wicked, evil ones who stoke end-time heresies which trouble and disturb Christ's little flock. People who boast about what is to be and saying, follow me because I'm going to lead you into all truth. That's a traveling companion of this evil one. But him who thinks he knows, boast not for he does not know. Also divine pretenders. Anybody who demands worship from you. Demands, expects, and entices worship and obedience belonging only to Christ. Look at verse 4 if you will on that. This person is hogging the worship that belongs to God alone. And if you know anybody in your life who's asking for a kind of worship, this is a traveling companion of the Antichrist to be avoided or at least called out. Um, Satan is to be as a traveling companion of this one. And all who seek to use his power, signs, and wonders. And I believe that we are in an age, the New Age movement advertises spiritual powers And they'll call them good or evil, white magic or dark magic, it doesn't matter. White magic would say, but we only use it for good. A white witch, a white wizard, I only use my powers for good. I'm sorry, you're getting involved with things that you shouldn't, and I think you know that. And they're all traveling companions of these antichrists. Here's the hardest thing. The perishing unbelievers who refuse to love the truth are traveling companions of the man of lawlessness. Let me say that again. The perishing unbelievers who refuse to love the truth. And that's the truth that the church is putting forward in a place like San Antonio, the seventh largest city in America. There are many churches. I've noticed vast, enormous churches here. But there's also a lot of people who do not know their right hand from their left, as it were, like Nineveh of old. They don't know what life is all about, and you are going to hold the truth before them. And in, just like the Apostle Paul, some people are going to say, I hate that. Get that away from me, and they'll throw rocks at you. Some will say, interesting, we'll have to hear more on this another day. And some will say, 
where have you been all my life? I've needed this news. This is the answer to everything. Teach me more. Those would be the three primary responses. And, and it says the perishing unbelievers who refuse to love the truth are part of these, this traveling team with the man 